Well, hey, friend, welcome to Job with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. Just as a reminder, this podcast is a listener-supported outreach of authentic intimacy. Well, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, which is a global day of generosity. And we're going to start by saying how incredibly grateful we are for uh, the generous community that supports this podcast and the ministry as a whole. Because you give, we are able to equip and support people all over the world as they're trying to make sense of God and sex. And if you want to learn more about Giving Tuesday or find out how you can partner with us financially in this ministry, click the Giving Tuesday link in our show notes. Then let me start by asking you some questions. What do you think the Bible tells us about marriage and about God? What is the significance of gender? How about sexual orientation? These are some of the questions that I unpack in today's episode with my guest, Sam Alberry. Sam is an author and pastor, and he fortunately has been a frequent guest on Job with Julie because every time I talk to him, I learn so much. I have a lot of respect for him when it comes to addressing these types of hot button issues in our modern culture. Now, if you're not able to tell from the title of this episode, Sam and I cover a lot of different concepts including the cost of discipleship and how we share the gospel with a world who may be wondering if what the gospel says is actually really good news. Whether you're married, single, same-sex attracted, or otherwise, this conversation has truth that is pertinent for every Christian. So please join with me in my conversation with Sam Alberry. Well, Sam, thanks so much for being on Job with Julie and I'm happy because this time I actually get to talk to you in person instead of over Zoom and right here in Nashville in your new hometown. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Well, yeah, it's great to meet you in person. I've just enjoyed so much learning from you and having conversations with you in the past. And you just had a new book release and Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different because it's a children's book. Tell me about it. Yeah. So... I've been speaking on, as you know, speaking on sexuality for some time now, as have you. And one of the questions I get asked a lot is Christian parents saying, how do I talk to kids about same-sex relationships? Mm -hmm. I'll have some advice, but one of the things I'm thinking is it's probably helpful if you've already had certain other conversations with them much earlier on. Mm -hmm. So it got me thinking it'd be good to have resources for young children that explain how marriage points to the gospel. Mm -hmm. So sort of four to eight-year-olds. So I came up with this idea a while ago and then thought, I must find someone to do that who can do children's ministry materials, who knows what they're doing with that kind of stuff. And every time I I suggested someone or asked a publisher, they said, you should do it. This is your Mm. idea. This is your kind of thing. So I had a crack at it myself, um, very graciously helped by, by the publisher. So, yeah, it's a book for young children talking about what marriage means. Mm. And so how do you communicate that to young children? Yes, that was what I had to figure out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And part of it was I thought if I write it in the form of a story, that will help hopefully if it's got a a little bit of a narrative to it. As I was mulling this over, some very dear friends of mine here celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And I was in the UK at the time, but I messaged them and wished them a happy anniversary. And I, I found myself saying to them, if marriage points to Christ and the gospel, then it's actually anniversaries rather than weddings that we should focus on. Mm. Because with an anniversary, you're seeing not just a promise made, but a promise kept. Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that could be the 
the way I teach this. So in the in the story, uh, these two kids are visiting their grandparents' house, something they do often, but this time it's a very different feeling and it's because it's their 50th wedding anniversary and that leads to discussions about marriage and how marriage points to, to God's love. Mm-hmm. Well, you originally started with the question, how do we talk to young children about same-sex relationships? Yeah. And one thing I've noticed is that we're far more comfortable talking about marriage as something that points to the gospel than we are including sexuality within that. Mm. Um, so can you talk about the link there? Yeah, and that's partly to do with wanting to be as age-appropriate as, as possible. But I'm thinking I want someone, before they find out about sexual feelings and sexual prohibitions, I want them to already have in place how the covenant love of a husband and wife points to the covenant mm-hmm. love between Christ and his people. But then obviously we know from reading the scriptures that marriage is the only place where God blesses sexual intimacy, that that's one of the ways covenant love within marriage is, is expressed and deepened. And there's there's going to be a, an appropriate time to talk about that side of things with children too. So sometimes I might, in this kind of context, say that a husband and wife have a special kind of love together without going into any, any mm-hmm. details about that. But one of the things I've I've become very aware of, and I'm sure many parents know this is the age at which children are being exposed to some of these topics is far far younger than we would mm-hmm. have wanted and and often realized yeah um, I, I sometimes have parents saying you know what age should I talk to children about you know same-sex sexual relationships and just as I was always taught growing up if if a woman asks you to guess her age you Think of the number and then for safety, subtract five. Mm-hmm. Um, when a parent is saying, when do you think my kids are going to be hearing about this stuff? My the, the sad answer is pick the age you think and then probably subtract five mm-hmm. because the nature of the world we live in, these issues come and find them much younger than we would want we would want them to. Right. And as parents, we think, wow, I don't want to shatter my kid's innocence. Yeah, we think, oh, I've got till they're 14 or something. And I'm thinking, well, no, the, but then the it's smartphones, culture, everything else, these right. things come a lot younger than that now, yeah. sadly. Not only topics about sexuality, but also gender mm. uh, are emerging. I know that's one question that I'm getting a lot is, yep. how do I even teach my three or four-year-old about sexuality and gender? And yeah. You know, the messages that are coming through even in children's programming is gender is a state of mind, it's yep. fluid. So I even wonder, how do you tease that out in terms of, in your book, marriage not just being marriage or covenant, but also the importance of how it's gendered? Yeah, this is so significant. One of the things that really compelled me to write this was I decided to pick up some just books from secular bookstores aimed at that age group that cover some of these issues and realized how how much ideology is being pushed on young children, as you just said, about gender identity and that kind of thing. So one of the things that the uh, publisher helpfully showed me was uh, one idea per book. So that the idea with this book is to show how marriage is based on a promise. Mm-hmm. I'm writing a follow-up book at the moment about how and why marriage is between a man and a woman. Mm. And I think at the moment that my my way of trying to explain that is God has designed certain things to pair well. Mm. So at the moment, this may change when the editor gets 
her hands on it. But at the moment, I'm thinking it's a day at the beach in the story where, again, the interplay between land and sea is what gives us the beach. Yes. So the sandcastles, the rock pools, all the fun of that only happens because the land and the sea are different and the intermingling of the two gives us something special. And similarly, that you know, male and female are both given to us as goods in creation and the, the intermingling of male and female in marriage is a unique thing. It's mm-hmm. a unique beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it with tangible. Or you even look at in all of nature that you need an egg and a seed. Yes. It's not two of the same. Yeah, um, but these exactly. are hard concepts for us to understand as adults and yeah. even more so to try to communicate them to little kids. But it's so important that even if they don't get all of it, we're beginning to start that conversation and lay a foundation. Yeah, we've got to start, we've got to begin it at yes. least. And I'm one of my concerns in all of this is giving young people, young children a positive framework Mm-hmm. So that when the prohibitions do come along, there's a positive framework in which to locate those prohibitions. It's yeah. not just, the biblical message isn't just a series of, you know, negatives. Mm-hmm. There's a deeper underlying positive that accounts for those negatives. Yeah. And not just when those prohibitions come, but the perversions come. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because they're they're destined to meet with both of those. Oh, for sure. And mm-hmm. everyone as they're growing up discovers in their own heart, mm-hmm. their own particular forms of sexual sin and temptation. And mm-hmm. we need to have already been persuaded of the goodness of God if we're going to fight those temptations. Yeah. How long ago was it that you started writing and speaking on sexuality? Uh, it was in 2012, okay. um, so 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my book has got into gay, released into 2013, uh-huh. which was only 10 years ago, but also was was 10 years ago, which <laughs> yeah. is eons ago now. Yeah, um, I started Authentic Intimacy in 2012 as well. Yeah. So I know it feels like forever ago and yeah. just all the ways that this conversation have evolved even in even in a decade is crazy. It really is. Yeah. And I, I've re- just re-released Is God Anti-Gay. I've done a, a thorough revision of it for that very reason that when I wrote it, gay marriage wasn't, wasn't a legal reality mm-hmm. in either the UK or the US. That, mm-hmm. that feels now ancient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the questions have moved on, the discussion has moved on. So I wanted to, to sort of catch up with where things are at and make sure the book can help with the issues that are alive right now. Yeah. Let me ask you, what have you learned in 10 years about that particular conversation? Uh, yeah, I mean, the conversation has shifted. So what I, the kinds of conversations I was having 10 years ago are different to the conversations I'm having now. Broadly speaking, 10 years ago, the the big question I kept getting was, does the Bible really say? The question I'm getting now is, how can Jesus be good if Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing he does say? Which I don't mind because I'm happy to talk about what the Bible says, but I'm even happier to talk about the goodness of Jesus in all of this. So that's been good. I've had to learn, you know, just to help people see the goodness of God's ways. I don't think people are going to care if what we say is true if they don't believe it's good mm-hmm. and that the big cultural narrative now is that the christian sexual ethic as we've understood it for so long is harmful and damaging and needs to be silenced and mm-hmm. all the rest of it so i think the other thing i've learned i've had a, a number of opportunities to speak with secular lgbt groups there is so much spiritual hunger Mm. there's often an initial barrier of I'm coming in as an evangelical pastor. 
There are certain assumptions they will have, understandably, about an evangelical pastor in their midst, a lot of fear, perhaps. But once I get through the the sort of hopefully showing them I'm not, I don't hate them, (laughs) and that we can have a real conversation, I, I find that there is so much hunger for spiritual truth. When I talk about how the Bible thinks of intimacy compared to how our culture does, I find people really dial in because there's a lot of people there who have been buying the narratives that that have been presented to them in our culture and who know that those things are empty. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not feeling fulfilled inside. It's, there's something hollow going on. Yeah. So I've realized there is so much spiritual opportunity. And the way I often put this to pastors is to say, the job here is not to hold the line. The job here is to win people. Mm. We're not defending fortress Christianity. We're actually going out into the world and the fields are, are ripe for harvest mm. on this very issue. Now, a few things I want to unpack that you said. First of all, when you say our job is not to hold the line, you're not saying that we let go of theology. No, no, I'm not saying don't hold the line. I'm saying do more than hold the line. Right. Okay. Uh, our job isn't just to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, try and keep the defenses intact. Our, our job is spiritually to go on the offensive. Yeah. Um, a verse I've been reflecting on a lot recently is when when Jesus says, you know, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. You know, I've thought, been familiar with that verse for years now. only occurred to me recently that a gate is not a weapon. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail, he's not saying just, you know, grit your teeth and hunker down and you'll get through this. He's saying you're the ones going on the offensive here and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Yeah. How else is Jesus going to build his church? He's going to build his church with souls that are being rescued from the kingdom of darkness. Mm. So we can get out there and reach people with this message. Yeah. One of the verses that really struck me in that same way was even the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And yes. heaven and on earth, like Jesus has authority here. Yeah. And we sometimes forget that. And it does feel like the gates of hell are prevailing. But as yeah. you said, they don't move. Like no, it's no a, they, they just collapse in. Yeah, it's our, but we've got to. That's a good scripture though, the Matthew 28 one, because it, it's easy to feel intimidated by where our culture's at. Mm-hmm. And we look at the people who shape culture and it's easy to think they've got the they've got the power and the authority, but they don't. Yeah. That's a great verse to look at. So we kind of react by fear. And I think all of us have felt that at some level around this topic. And you already sort of touched on a few of the reasons that we have fear. One of them is that people are gonna hate us or they do hate us if they see a label mm. like you're a Christian and you really bear that in terms of having the role of pastor. Mm. But I think a lot of us can feel that way with our family members, yep. with our coworkers. So I'd love to know, how do you move into that? How do you step into that space and yeah. show that, hey, I'm not here to reject you. Yeah. I'm here to love. Yeah, the, I do think the onus is on us to show that. Mm. We could go into that feeling offended that they've got those assumptions and how dare they and that's not fair. But actually, I think we should just go in there and think, okay, my responsibility is to actually surprise them with Mm. what I'm actually like as a Christian. The good news is because so many people have those kinds of expectations of what a Christian is going to be like, it should be relatively easy to pleasantly surprise them. (laughs) I mean, if we fail at that point, we're you know. So I think just to show people that we're, 
we're interested in them. We want to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, always love hearing people's stories, particularly around these issues. If I'm with someone who's not a Christian, they would say they're gay, whatever it might be. I always want to hear their story. Um, mm-hmm. It'll help me understand them better. It'll help hopefully give me a, a bit more wisdom in terms of how I might share something of the gospel with them. But I want them to realize, okay, this guy isn't just here to shove something at me. He's he's interested in me. He's listening. He's attentive. I want to be gracious and respectful. The Bible tells us we, we should be uh, to all who are outside the faith. And I'm going to stick around long enough that even if they still want to push me away, I will always be communicating, that's at your end, it's not at my end. Mm. And it's tempting in this world, you know, if someone shoves you, you want to shove them back. If right. someone retreats from you, you want to retreat from them. If someone is snarky about you online, you want to be snarky back. But actually, I find time is on our sides. Mm. Time is on our side. If we can be consistently gracious and kind and thoughtful and loving and interested, people begin to realize over time, okay, this is real. This guy really is for me, mm-hmm. even if he's not agreeing with me. Yeah. So that, that I found that, that to be the case. In context where it's someone I, I have time and opportunity to get to know, they can say what they want about me. I can't control that. But I, I can hopefully over time show them that that might not be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that, that I've learned in that too is that people get angry because there's pain. Yes. And so many people that have that anger have it because they've experienced rejection. They've experienced yeah. hurt in a religious setting, whether it's been in Christianity or another. Mm-hmm. And so even just learning about that pain. That's really important because, yes, our, we want them to know we feel for them in that, mm-hmm. that we, you know, if that pain has come because, as you say, there's been rejection or hostility or someone has demeaned them, particularly if someone's done that from the church somewhere, mm-hmm. we, we want them to know, we don't think that's okay, mm-hmm. that actually Jesus, that's not the way of Jesus himself. Mm. That's really important. Do you share any of your own story in those types of interactions? I do, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, not as a sort of a ploy, but generally if you're asking someone else for their story, they'll ask for a bit of yours. I find it can be disarming mm-hmm. um, because they're not necessarily expecting me to articulate experiences that they thought they were the only one in the conversation to have had. So it can be a way of hopefully building a bit of a bridge. But also it, it's trying to show them that I'm, I'm not coming to this from a, a posture of, hey, I've got all of this sorted out and I'm looking down on you as someone who, who might not. But actually all of us are complicated creatures and yeah. amazingly God has responded to us in grace. Mm. He's come to us in our mess mm-hmm. and showered love upon us. So I want people to know that I'm, I'm not coming from a, a position of assumed sortedness, mm-hmm. but actually I've, I've brought my own messy baggage into the faith. Yeah. And if God can have mercy on this fallen, disordered soul, then he can have mercy on anyone. Mm-hmm. Boy, then that's very disarming. And again, God becomes the hero, not us. Exactly. And that, mm-hmm. that is the gospel. If we're looking good the whole time, it's probably not the gospel we're sharing. Mm-hmm. Sam, another point that you brought up, I think that makes us feel fearful is somebody's going to ask us something that we can't answer. Yeah. So you brought up, people are asking, how could Jesus be good Mm. if this is what the Bible says? And 
I would say that probably the vast majority of Christians would be like, I wouldn't even know how, how to begin yeah. to unpack that. Um, so can you give some guidance on how we begin to share and journey with somebody about the goodness of God, particularly in conversations around sexuality? Yeah, and and one of the things that, that actually helps me and emboldens me to to have conversations is knowing it is perfectly okay as a Christian to say, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not expected to be people who know everything. Um, we're, we're meant to be showing our dependence on the one who does know everything. Yeah. So we mustn't fear that. But given that's a big question, it's a good thing to think through and to try and be prepared to answer on. And I think it's a question each of us can answer personally because in our own lives, we've all had to reckon with the ways in which Jesus has called us to take up our cross and to deny self, and yet where we found Jesus to be worth it. So it may not, for some of us, be first and foremost in the area of sexuality. It may be in some other area of life, but all of us can say, I know that what Jesus is calling us into is hard. It's hard for all of us. Denying self is hard. And yet each of us should then be able to say, and this is where it's, you know, really where I've really felt that pinch in my own life. And yet I found that at those very points where you think Jesus is taking your life away from you, he's actually giving life to you. There's a humaneness to what Jesus says that actually the more I walk in his ways, the more I see the sense of them, the more I realize, okay, yeah, he's better at this stuff than I am. Mm. And each of us has some version of that as a Christian disciple that we should be able to point to and say, here's, here's how I've seen the cost of following Jesus and how that cost has actually become something really worth bearing. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's hard to articulate in a short conversation. It is, which is why these things always work better when there's a, there's a sort of an ongoing relationship and you're, you're doing life together. Mm-hmm. And these things sort of then come out along the way. But yeah, we, we want to show people that the gospel isn't, you know, here's some hard stuff, but grit your teeth and eventually you'll get heaven. Jesus is too good for that. Mm-hmm. He's worth it even in this life. I mean, yeah. we want to show people that, yeah, I don't always find what he says easy, but boy, it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had people ask me before, like, what's your elevator pitch on God and same-sex marriage? And I'm like, I don't have one. Like, that's not an elevator conversation. No. And like, that's that's <laughs> good response too. There, there are times we can say legitimately, hey, I don't know the answer to that. There are other times where it's good to say, to answer that question, I really need to sit down with you and have a, right? or have a coffee. Yeah. Because, you know, somebody said to me once, you know, do gay people go to hell, yes or no? This was in a public Q&A. And I remember thinking, I think this issue deserves more than one syllable. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to the person, I'd love to sit down with you and have a coffee. Mm. The short answer is if there's no hope for our gay friends, there's no hope for any of us. Yeah. But let me have a coffee with you and explain mm-hmm. what I mean by that. But there are so many times when Jesus was asked complicated questions and he came back with a question. Yeah. Uh, or he said, essentially, this you're asking the wrong thing. Yeah, he, here's and, the answer to the question you should have been asking. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And again, at the end of the day, we, we just want to keep pointing people to him. Right. And I always want people to know, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to anything for that matter, really, I'm just trying to yeah. show you who Christ is. Yeah. That's the issue here. Mm. If you're offended that I believe what I believe, then you, you really do need to know I believe these things because I follow Jesus and he teaches me to believe these things. Yeah. So if you want to pick a fight with someone, pick a fight with him. Mm. Wow, that's a good way to, to say it. 
You know, one of the things that I've noticed in the progression of all this in the last decade or so is for someone to have make these conclusions of I'm gay, I'm bisexual, I'm asexual, whatever it may be, there are all these assumptions that are made underneath that, mm. that our culture is promoting. Mm -hmm. Like your sexuality is such a key to your identity, or even your sexual desires are determinative yep. in terms of whether you marry or who you marry. And as the people of God, we've been fed this too, mm -hmm. where Christians will be like, I'm not attracted to my spouse anymore. Maybe I shouldn't be married. Mm. But one of the things that's so tricky about this, Sam, is that all those assumptions are false, but we don't challenge those assumptions. Yeah. And I just wonder what that's looked like in your ministry of how do we get not just to saying this behavior is wrong, yeah. but the way you're thinking about your sexuality is built on things that aren't true. Yeah, that's so important. And a lot of these assumptions are undeclared. Mm-hmm. And they're not always conscious assumptions right. that, that people are bringing. I was talking to someone just recently who was saying, what do I say to young people when, you know, you're saying they, they don't have any hope of romantic intimacy? And I'm thinking, well, you're assuming romantic intimacy is the non-negotiable necessary ingredient of life here. Where does that assumption come from? Mm -hmm. That's a very recent and Western way to think. But again, there's an underlying assumption there that without romantic fulfillment, we're not really living full lives. Mm. Why do we think that? Yeah. Where's the evidence for that? Mm -hmm. And to show actually, here's, here's a counter narrative the Bible gives us that actually romantic intimacy is one kind of intimacy. There are multiple other kinds of intimacy that each of us is designed for. And all of them point to the, the most fundamental intimacy, which is the one who very significantly called himself the bridegroom. Right. Um, that's the clue here. Mm -hmm. So we do need to try and tease out some of those assumptions because people are bringing cultural narratives into this discussion without even knowing they're doing so. Mm. Um, just the sort of, you know, well, of course, being gay is who, is, is who I am. God made me that way. Again, there's a, there's a lot of assumptions. So why is being gay who you are rather than being brown-haired or being British or being right-handed or any number of other things that describe us. Mm -hmm. Why is that the thing that defines you? Why is that you? Mm. And I remember listening to Tim Keller a few years ago, kind of give a good worked example of this. He was saying, if imagine you were in the UK a thousand years ago, Anglo-Saxon warrior, you feel anger and wrath to those who kind of wrong you. You also feel a, a sort of romantic sexual feeling towards other men. You will think a thousand years ago that desire for vengeance, yeah, that's right, that's who I am. And the, those romantic feelings, you'll think, I don't know where that came from, I'm going to ignore that. The same man walking around the same place today with the same two impulses would immediately think, oh, that anger, I don't know where that comes from, that's not me. But those sexual feelings, that is me. And the point Keller's making is it's, it's not our feelings that are defining who we are. It's our culture telling us which feelings matter the most. Right. It's and our culture to, defining us. And how to us. make sense of those feelings. Yeah. Like even the assumption that romantic love, again, is determinative instead of something that you actually invest in. Yeah. It's romantic love is something you nurture. Yes. Uh, it's not just, oh, I found love and yeah, yeah. here we go off into the I sunset. I tumbled into it and yeah. I'm passive in the whole thing and it comes or it goes and... Yeah, yeah, which kind of gets into another question I had. 
about what we might call like mixed orientation marriages. Mm. I don't even know that I like that term, but that's what we call it. But do you feel like there are people who have some same-sex attraction who just naturally assume, well, then my choices are to either disobey God and marry a same-sex person or to be celibate Mm. the rest of my life? Or do you feel like some of what we need to be pushing on is we don't always get married because of who we're sexually attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, I, I want to level the playing field and say that the same, it's the same options for all of us. Yeah. We either have heterosexual marriage or we have celibacy and chasteness in our singleness. I do know people who would say that they are still predominantly attracted to the same sex who have happy, healthy marriages to someone of the other sex. Mm-hmm. There's a, a way to go into that responsibly and a way to do that irresponsibly. We're not commending the latter. Mm-hmm. The people I'm thinking of are, are ones who open from day one with the, the person they, they have since come to marry. But I remember one of my friends, uh, he shared his story publicly so I can use he and his wife's name. Sean said to me once, it turns out I didn't need to be attracted to women. I just needed to be attracted to Gabby, mm-hmm. his wife. And mm-hmm. he found that she was the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. So that there is always that possibility. It may not be the case for many or most, but it will be the case for some. And one of the things that helped Sean get to the point where he thought, actually, I can marry a woman, was he, he was thinking, actually, you know, my sexual identity is is biologically determined, not emotionally determined. And he realized, I'm, he said, you know, biologically, I'm male. I'm biologically designed to marry a woman. Mm. So that, that made him think this is not an unthinkable thing. Mm-hmm. And in as much as, as Genesis 1 would talk about us having a sexual identity, it's being male and female, not being this kind of attracted or that kind of attracted. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, you know, if someone says to me, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm attracted to people of the same sex, where does that leave me? I'd want to say to them, don't presume you won't get married to a, someone of the other sex and for that matter, don't presume you will either. Right. But be open to what the Lord yeah. might have for you. And either road provides blessings and challenges. Exactly. And um, again, that's another cultural narrative we really need to wrestle with is this this idea that unless you are romantically involved with someone, you can't really live. Mm-hmm. Um, that is such a destructive way of thinking. Mm. Something you said a minute ago really struck me about Genesis. You know, very clear that our identity is rooted in male and female, mm. but no mention of our identity being rooted in sexual desires or attractions. Mm-hmm. We've really reversed that. And today totally. where male and female are optional, yep. but sexual desires become determinative in our identities. It is. It's ironic. I guess it's unsurprising that we've flipped it in that way. But yeah. and my, my, you know, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the resurrection plays into this as well. When I'm resurrected for the life to come, I will be resurrected as a man. Mm-hmm. That is part of my eternal identity. I won't be resurrected with the same sexual feelings that I've experienced in this life. Those are not part of my eternal identity. It wouldn't make theological sense for me to make those attractions the key identity for me. They're, they're not the thing that is defining. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Well, our culture is, well, actually, sexual orientation is fixed and is a given, whereas your sense of gender is entirely plastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've flip things from mm-hmm. how we see them in the Bible, which is what we do. Yeah. It's what we yeah. do as human beings. It's so true. As you went back and rewrote this book after a decade, 
What are some of the key changes that you incorporated? Yeah, some of it was restructuring the book. So mm-hmm. 10 years ago, again, the big questions were, does the Bible really say this? So my sort of I front-loaded the, the book originally with going through the key texts on same-sex relationships, Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians. No one's asking about those passages anymore. I still wanted to keep that material in the book, but I shoved that at the back now because, again, the real pressing question is, can a Jesus who puts sexual constraint on us possibly be good? So I've made that the front of the book now because that to me is the key issue and everything else flows out of that. I had realized I had initially written the original book principally for Christians with an awareness that the occasional non-Christian might be reading as well. Over the years, so many Christians have said they've given the book away to their friends. I've heard of people coming to Christ through it. So something else I've done in the rewrite is to make it more overtly accessible to someone who who isn't a believer. Mm -hmm. So I hope it will be an easier thing for them to read. Um, I figured if people are using it that way already, let's let's run with that. Yeah. I've changed some of the terminology where certain things ten years ago feel a little more clunky now. Mm -hmm. The the word homosexuality is is more of a no one battered an eyelid of that word ten years ago, but I know for a lot of people who particularly non Christian gay people, that can be a a difficult word and I feel no particular loyalty to it. So I've tried to make the language as, again, as accessible as possible. I, I want only the gospel to cause offense. So I'm trying in my terminology just to be a little bit more friendly, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, and just um, sensitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's those things. There's a few other things I've I've added or expanded where I thought, okay, that's a question we need to lean into more now. Um, is the... Christian sexual ethic harmful, that kind of thing. Should I attend a wedding if I'm invited by a same-sex couple? Um, other questions I figured, okay, I'll keep that, but I don't need to have that many pages on it and I'll yeah. reduce it a bit. So okay. I've reprioritized sure. some of the content. Yeah. So the main heart behind the book is to provide an explanation of how God and particularly Jesus can be good in light of the sexual ethic. Yeah. Uh, and when I asked you a little bit about how we do that, you said, well, it kind of depends. It's an individual journey. Yep. But obviously you wrote a book on mm-hmm. this. What were some of the key ways that you were showing readers that yeah. actually God is very good, not in spite of how he created yeah. sexuality, but even through how he created it? Yeah, so that uh, in a few different ways is the short answer. One is by showing, again, how Jesus assumes there will be a cost of discipleship for anyone mm-hmm. following him, how he also assumes that cost is more than worth bearing with. So looking at how he himself kind of vindicates the fact that he's not easy to follow. Mm. I also spend some time. So another significant thing is to try, again, try and show what God's purpose for sexuality always was and how Part of that is for the unity and fellowship of marriage and the, the potential for procreation. But as well as that, we also see this idea that, that marriage is meant to be one of the things that points to the big reason for everything, which is that we come to know mm-hmm. God himself. Yeah. And knowing that kind of part of the Bible's big storyline helps account for why the Bible has the kind of sexual ethics that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we see something of the goodness of God. It's not incidental that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. He's, he's showing us this is what everything else is pointing to. Yeah, Our desire for romantic Im- 
intimacy is actually a reflection of a far deeper desire for connection we have with our own creator. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult concept for people to get their minds around, especially when they hear it for the first time. It is. It sounds very peculiar. Yeah. And I, I totally get that, but it, it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. It has so much explanatory power because it, it shows why, you know, on the one hand, culture's been saying for so long, oh, it's just physical. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It's just biology. It's just bodily fluids. And yet we know that's not the case. We know it's meant to mean something. We know that, for example, sexual abuse is more than just the abuse of someone physically. There's something far deeper, far more psychological and emotional involved Mm -hmm. with it because sex is meant to be about far more than merely two bodies. Mm -hmm. So I find that that biblical framework for it accounts for things that we do know at an instinctive level and haven't quite accounted for in our culture. Yeah. It also accounts for some of the the longings of our hearts and how even the the best and healthiest human marriage isn't isn't enough, Mm -hmm. that the human soul is too heavy, too weighty a thing to be fully carried by what we would think of as being romantic fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Uh, We matter too much. Yeah. We need something bigger. Yeah, but we can all attest to that. So that's good. One thing you've mentioned a few times that I think we need to make sure to highlight mm. is this cost of following Jesus. Yeah. And there may be same-sex attracted um, Christians or just people that are like, hey, you all are getting what you want. You're getting the happiness of a family. You're getting intimacy. You're getting sex. That's easy for you to say. Mm. And one of the, I think, valid criticisms of our argument of this is that heterosexual Christians aren't taking up a cross Uh, They are not, uh, as like Bonhoeffer would call, counting the cost of discipleship. Uh, And not only just in the sexual realm, which is a huge part of it, but at some level, we're still living that prosperity gospel of, I can have the world in Jesus too. Yes. And uh, can you talk about what that looks like for all Christians to be a faithful witness to cross-bearing and not just say, well, you, I get to have what I want, but you can't. Yeah, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus to think anyone gets what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we, at least what we think we want, Jesus has us to deny. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So that this isn't just for some people who have to deny themselves and others don't. Everyone does. And so if a Christian is thinking, well, I get if I get to marry someone of the other sex, I get to have everything I want you're being very naive about your marriage and you're being very naive about what you actually want because I've been around enough marriages, I've been a pastor for enough years to know that that marriage isn't a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. That can be profoundly sacrificial. Um, I've spoken to married friends who've been candid with me and have said at times, you know, there are times they envy my singleness mm-hmm. um, because marriage can be very difficult. Raising kids can be very difficult. These are all relationships that are meant to constrain us. They are relational forms of having to say no to self for the sake of someone else. So none of us is off off the hook on that. Um, Mm. If you marry because you think it will be easier for you, just as if you stay single because you think it will be easier for you, you're missing the point of both. Yeah. Both are going to be costly. Both will have their ups and downs. Both are a huge privilege. Both come with enormous blessings and opportunities to draw near to God. But there is no category of Christians who get a, who gets everything their way. Mm. You know, one of my best friends here in, in town is 
happily married, healthily married, as far as I can tell. And he'll often say, you know, he is having to say no to a lot of his own sexual desires. It's not that he's getting everything his way sexually by being married. He's not. He's mm-hmm. actually having to be faithful to his wife. Yeah. So that cost of discipleship is not avoidable for anyone. And if someone thinks they've somehow found a way around it, they haven't actually found Jesus. Yeah. It's not avoidable, but also for everyone, it, it is worth it. Mm-hmm. If we really press into who Jesus is, if we really start to see the goodness of his ways, it, it really is worth it. I saw, and, and I would say, you know, one thing you mentioned that people go into marriage naively thinking I'm going to get everything I want. And then there's sort of this rude awakening. It's but this I, other person yes. who has the things that they want to. <laughs> and then the kids and yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'd also say that, you know, Jesus says, take up your cross, that yeah. it's a choice. And so it's very possible that we can be nominal Christians and have a saving relationship with Jesus that hasn't transferred into becoming a disciple and yeah. a true follower. And so we can make decisions of, I'll honor God in this pocket of my mm-hmm. life, but where it's too costly, yeah, I want it my way. And that might feel like we're getting our cake and eating it, but actually we're really missing out mm-hmm. because there's something about stepping into that cruciformity of discipleship, that stepping into that saying no to self for the sake of Jesus, that actually you begin to really live. Mm-hmm. that's where you start to get your humanity back. Mm-hmm. And that can often be very painful. Jesus uses the imagery of taking up your cross yeah. for a reason. And yet actually we realize in the Christian life, it's the best way to live. Yeah, There's such a deep joy that comes from trying to follow Jesus his way and not trying to follow Jesus our way. Mm-hmm. Sam, how has your personal experience as a single same-sex attracted Christian man just shaped you, who you are and your relationship with God? Yeah, I think in lots of ways, probably more than I'm aware of, it's been the occasion for a lot of things. It's been the occasion for some very significant pain at times, Um, the pain of experiencing desires and temptations that are are distressing to oneself that you wish you didn't experience, mm-hmm. um, that you know you, you have to fight in your own flesh, uh, just the weariness of our own sin. Mm-hmm. There are times when singleness has, has not been easy, where I felt lonely and it's not been, yeah, it's not been <laughs> always been fun, but it, it's been the occasion for just extraordinary blessing too. The, even the experiences of, of some of those temptations, they've brought me low before the Lord in a way that has been actually a deep blessing and a, a deep relief to, to have to come before him and cast myself upon him. Some of the, the sweetest times I've had with the Lord have been those times and I've, I've, been, I've come to the end of myself and thought, Lord, I'm, I'm a wretch. But that's often it's in those, those places where we really meet Jesus. And it's been a, an occasion for meeting some really wonderful people. I wouldn't have half the friendships I have now where I'm not single, either because I wouldn't have had the capacity and the time for them or I wouldn't have been doing what I've been doing and that, that's introduced me to different friends and different people and, and all the rest of it. I, there's a, I often say it this way, that there's a, there's a depth of intimacy I don't experience by not being married, but there's a breadth of intimacy I get to experience as a single person that I wouldn't be able to experience if I was married. Mm. There are some people I've got to know at a very deep soul-to-soul level, and I can't imagine them not knowing them. 
mm-hmm. and not knowing them that well. And I'm very grateful that singleness has been a way in which I've, I've been able to foster, yeah, some very precious friendships. I love the way you describe that. Let me ask you, does it get easier with time? Does a battle get easier with time, the loneliness? Or is it like, no, it's just a journey with hills and valleys? It, 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 well, things do change over time. Um, it's not necessarily that life gets easier, but we become more battle experienced. Uh-huh. We gain experience at fighting our own sins. We're able to put healthy things in place and that kind of thing. But just, just shifting through different stages of life, different mm-hmm. things become easier, different things become harder. Yeah. I've generally found singleness in my 40s easier than singleness in my 30s. It may just be because of where I was in my 30s and where I've been in my 40s. But I think there's something about that stage of life as well. I don't know what it'll be like in my 50s. I'll find out. Mm-hmm. Um, there are always going to be ups and downs. That's part of the nature of of life in this world. But mm-hmm. um, we, we get to know Jesus better through it all. And that makes everything. Yeah, I would rather know Jesus as well as I do now than be back in my 20s. I had more energy then, but I've got more wisdom now. So I think the thing that gets easier is we have more and more personal experience of the Lord's faithfulness to us, uh, more reason to keep trusting Him. Everything really is all about God and the cross. Now, I know we covered a lot today, but I think this central topic is one of my favorite of all that Sam and I talked about. Following Jesus means counting the cost of discipleship. It's going to mean saying no to some things. It means living a life in love and honesty that proclaims the truth of the gospel without hiding our own need for salvation. And it means walking a hard but joyful path toward the one who is our Savior and our hope. And all of this is only possible as we see and understand the goodness of God in His heart for us personally and for humanity. Now, if you want to hear more from Sam or you would like to purchase God's signpost or his new edition of Is God Anti-Gay? We've linked to both of those in our show notes, along with some additional resources on the topic of biblical sexuality. Well, I hope this conversation has blessed you. And as always, thanks for joining me. I look forward to being with you next time on Java with Julie.